I think the punchline is this, that if you don't have symptoms, they are not recommending that you get testing for the coronavirus. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the August 26th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credit. For complete CE information and to attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window and as a green icon in the bottom menu. Today's learning objectives are discuss the current CDC guidance of COVID-19 testing in asymptomatic people and describe the limitations of the currently available data concerning convalescent plasma. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. And joining us today is Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you for your time, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. Uh, as we move through the summer, I have a sense that the numbers remain very scary, but perhaps there's less angst and, and some signs of hopefulness compared to earlier this summer when we had a rise in cases. The number of uh, deaths, as you can see, uh, are continuing to strive towards the 1 million mark, which uh, certainly is a reflection of the seriousness of the pandemic. But if you look at the United States with some increasing testing, there's some trends that I thought might be worth noting. First, the percent positives that uh, hopefully are below 5% reflecting that perhaps wider spread community impact of the coronavirus is not as prominent. Uh, we are getting closer to achieving that after some more hopeful numbers in late June. However, what does worry some people, and it worries me as well, is that the number of tests performed as you can see, are not nearly as high as they were in July. Now, this might reflect uh, people not seeking out testing, inability to find testing. Uh, many people that look at the number of tests that should be performed per day that would allow cases to be identified, isolated, and so on, estimate that we really have to be at higher levels, up to three to even four million cases a day compared to what you see here that have been sort of averaging 600 to 700,000 per day across the United States. So I, I think this is important because if we are not testing as much, especially as we head into the fall, I do think this will be problematic. 
Now, some updates which have been in the news, and I, I think I would just sort of re reflect on some of my own personal opinions about some regulatory changes mostly and how it might impact both um, your practices and patients and, and need to be aware. Uh, the first is the Centers for Disease Control issued some updates that really the, I think the punchline is this, that if you don't have symptoms, they are not recommending that you get testing for the coronavirus. Now, this doesn't matter if you've been in close contact um, and even if you're in a uh, big setting, uh, they're not recommending it. Now, uh, because contact tracing is often problematic in so many parts of the country, uh, this to me flies in the face of what are often private efforts in trying to help notify people that if you're positive, you might think back two or three days from your positive test or first day of symptoms and notify people that have been in close contact that they might be at least wary, self-isolate and or test. Of course, this strategy does uh, decrease numbers if people don't seek out testing. But on the other hand, if someone does become positive and they, of course, also engaged with other people, there would be a lost opportunity. And I, I know many people are motivated once they find they have positive tests to try to uh, let people know. So this, this is an odd one. This is uh, saying just stay home, basically. And of course, that message is also important, uh, but the lack of testing, I think, has upset many that would view that as important, especially if numbers are less frequent, meaning that there's not overwhelming number of cases. This would be important uh, to try to help notify people and follow up on testing. Now, one other aspect of testing that was uh, changed last week is something that the FDA has been struggling with, I would say, for several years, even going back to the Obama administration, and that is FDA regulation of laboratory-developed tests. The way I sort of look at this, this is sort of like herbs and nutraceuticals in the drug market. Now, laboratory-developed tests are essentially this. As long as you have a lab that's so-called CLIA-approved, meaning you meet analytical standards, you can develop a test and offer it, as long as it's only offered in that one lab and not anywhere else. If it's offered elsewhere, you would need to march through the FDA processes that include clinical validation. So laboratory-developed tests by themselves don't require clinical validation. That is, you don't really need to test whether this works in a group of patients. Instead, you could just have some positive and negative controls. And if you prove that it works there, you can offer the test. But of course, that doesn't really translate to reality. Now, on the one hand, LDTs are important when you have very rare infections. Um, a lot of academic medical centers, their labs develop them, such as an adenovirus test to check uh, in patients with transplants to see if they have this particular infection, but they've generally been clinically validated, even though they don't go through the regulatory FDA approval process. So the concern here is by releasing uh, the need for emergency use authorization or further guidance from the FDA, there could be a, a large range of tests that may have variable 
performance and clinical performance that remains unknown. You only know that they have analytical performance. And this could just lead to additional confusion. Of course, this is in the spirit of increasing the number of tests available, but especially as we mature in our knowledge of the virus, to me, it makes more sense that we have tests that um, have excellent performance characteristics and people know what the results are and what they mean. And this, of course, potentially does away with that in laboratories that don't go through extra steps. And news on treatment, the big news was that convalescent plasma from patients that have recovered from COVID-19 has received an emergency use authorization. You might say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal was this. Initially, emergency investigational new drug applications had to be developed and put through an institutional review board, or you obtain the plasma and reported data to the Mayo Clinic, who was organized a sort of easy-to-use pathway for convalescent plasma. So the FDA approved this, and uh, this weekend trumpeted some information that I think was overhyped uh, by many and subsequently criticized by uh, both the President, Health and Human Services Administration, and the Food and Drug Administration, all saying that convalescent plasma led to a 35% mortality reduction. And of course, if this were true, this would be absolutely amazing, and uh, we would all want to embrace it as soon as possible. But instead, it's created a bit of a firestorm and indeed, just a week earlier and before, there was some hesitation because to date, there have not been any prospective randomized trials to really inform whether convalescent plasma truly works and how you might best use it in your patients, given that it's such a scarce resource. So there has been concerns that there was some undue political pressure to reverse the FDA decision, sort of apropos of what may have happened with hydroxychloroquine earlier when that was released. And of course, we want something that can help patients. We know we don't have any approved strategies yet. We're still continuing with some uh, investigational strategies like in remdesivir, uh, which is still not FDA approved, or a drug like dexamethasone, which is helping on the inflammatory process does not require any FDA approval, but, but still there's some wariness about really how well this might work in those populations. So there's a lot of hope that maybe something like plasma may work and that emergency investigational uh, drug pathway, which has been approved in late March, had a large number of patients in the tens of thousands. However, what a, a preprint only that has been examined and probably the data that the FDA reviewed looked at only about 3,000 patients and found what we would call a dose response analysis. That is, some people got plasma that had lots of antibodies in it. Others got uh, plasma that didn't have a lot of antibodies because we know for people that donate plasma, on average, about a third of the units really don't have very high titers of antibodies. So what they did is they looked at seven and 30 day mortality for this uh, group. And overall, there was overlapping mortality data. So if you look at everyone, there is no clear benefit. However, a subgroup, and that was if you were under 80 years, 
not on a ventilator, and received high titer plasma within three days of admission and diagnosis, that that group had a 35% mortality reduction by relative risk compared to uh, groups that got low antibody titers. Now, there was no placebo component. And interestingly, the group decided to exclude any analysis of so-called medium titer units. So this is a subgroup analysis. And you can get a look at the what is probably the key figure from this paper, which has not been yet peer reviewed, uh, that looked at seven-day and 30-day mortality and uh, suggested that there's a 35% benefit relative risk reduction at seven days and a, a slightly lower risk reduction of about 23% at 30 days, which many would argue is probably more important, but of course the 35% figure was touted. Now, there are problems because for those of you that know about relative risk, you're examining treatment groups and really, when you do this, you're looking at the effect of an intervention, but often this kind of relative risk analysis will obscure the magnitude of an effect, and it almost always tends to overestimate how effective something is. Rather, you'd rather know the absolute risk. What's the difference between a group that gets an intervention and doesn't? And indeed, that wasn't the case in this group, and that's the kind of thing which you can either do in a randomized controlled trial, or if some group is being compared that didn't get it, you can uh, then uh, figure out some estimates for the number of people that need to get plasma to avoid a death, for example. So the study of the data presented, of course, everyone received plasma, so we couldn't really look at absolute risk, which is, uh, which is much better. Now, the emergency use authorization was not very detailed or specific. There's been some conflicting information about titering data with the plasma, and the EUA says you have to use a specific ortho test with a signal cutoff for a high titer to label that high titer or low titer. Now, this is not neutralizing antibodies, which uh, there's a variety of recommendations. So this has uh, created some confusion. Units that are not titered, can you use them? It does not uh, appear that you probably can. And although high titer units are naturally preferable, in this case, low titer units are deemed acceptable uh, if deemed so by the clinician. Now, importantly, unlike remdesivir, which was assumed to become a standard of care, the FDA went out of their way to say that this EUA did not mean convalescent plasma was a standard of care. It's a curious piece of language uh, because I think many thought it would be adopted as a standard of care if the FDA gave it emergency use authorization. And I think part of the reason it may be uh, helpful for clinical trials because if it becomes the standard of care for clinical trials, then you always have to get plasma and this could confound a number of uh, clinical trials. In other drugs and compounds, for example, such as monoclonal antibodies and so on. There are a lot of issues here, and, and for example, confusion. People really don't know if you can use old units of plasma. Um, are blood banks that uh, develop the plasma from donors, um, are they set up to titer this uh, as opposed to research studies? Um, so there's a lot of processes, and even now people are unsure how to get plasma, and some institutions have been rather, I won't say dogmatic, but conservative in saying, look, we only want to give plasma in 
uh, clinical trials. We don't want to give it because we're not sure if it's really working. On the other hand, I think some of this dose response data so that you really do have, you're comparing different doses, does lead to some information that suggests that a giving uh, plasma, which has been tested in uh, tens of thousands of patients, appears mostly safe. We don't really know who or when to give it, but we know from a number of studies and when it's been employed for other conditions, the earlier you give it, the better. So the three days in this analysis is probably consistent with the biologic plausibility of using convalescent data, but it's still a scarce resource. And the EUA does not necessarily limit it to just those three-day administrations from admission. So this is really up to the clinicians in deciding whether to give it or not. Um, I think there remains a lot of controversy. And as always, when you have imperfect data, there are many opinions about this. So if you do have uh, someone who's unfortunately ill with COVID-19, uh, you can always ask about clinical trials at your institution. But for the time being, there's uh, still a fair amount of confusion about next steps for procuring convalescent plasma if you wish to do so. Hopefully, this will become a bit more clear over the next few days or weeks, Faith. Okay, thank you for those updates. We will now move on to the listener Q&A. Okay, our first learner question. Are there any updates in the literature on COVID-19 and pregnancy? Does pregnancy put a woman at higher risk of infection or severe infection? Are there risks to the fetus? Yeah, so this is evolving information. I, I don't think there's any definitive answers. There is a sense that uh, pregnant women do have worse outcomes if they're ill enough to land in the intensive care unit and on a mechanical ventilator than women who are the same age and not pregnant, for example. However, this is something that has to be explored more thoroughly. Uh, I think people generally would advocate that women who are pregnant, just as we do with influenza, take great care to not become infected and try to limit their exposures. We don't think uh, the virus is a teratogen in the sense of causing fetal malformations like the Zika virus. That signal really hasn't come out yet and, and would be a bit unusual for a pure uh, respiratory virus as well. So th again, this is one of those areas of evolving information and um, we're, we're not yet absolutely clear on the health risks of this virus to pregnancy. Okay, our second learner question. What does the current evidence say about a correlation, if any, between vitamin D and COVID-19? Yeah, so vitamin D has been one of the topics that have been around for decades. Uh, I'll tell you from personal experience, I think my father was a believer in vitamin D supplementation through cod liver oil. You know, going back to the 1930s and 40s, vitamin D was espoused as a method that if you took it daily, and uh, I happen to take it as rather nasty cod liver oil, that you would stay better and avoid getting a, a respiratory infections. And indeed, interestingly, over the last 10 or 20 years, some randomized controlled trials do suggest that vitamin D supplementation may have some impact on uh, decreasing respiratory infections, but it's a mixed set of data. So uh, because of that background, people are looking at COVID-19 and vitamin D, and indeed some of the groups that seem to be especially prone 
to bad outcomes with COVID-19 are some of the same groups that might historically have low vitamin D levels often in that population. The elderly, for example, um, uh, blacks and so on. So we don't know, and I will tell you it's gonna be very confusing. Uh, you know, if you're looking to take extra vitamin D when you become ill with COVID-19, ill enough to be hospitalized, I think it's going to be too confusing to discern an impact. I mean, people are now getting remdesivir, they're getting dexamethasone, maybe plasma. So impact of trying to notice if vitamin D makes a difference, I think, is going to be hard to say. I think trials that are looking at it as a preventative, which are in progress, might be more informative. So that if you're taking vitamin D supplementation versus placebo, are people at less risk for acquiring or getting severe illness? That's what's going to inform us. So for the moment, I would say it's unclear. And even prior data, I would say, is generally mixed. So hard to come up with a recommendation. Uh, some of the espousers of vitamin D supplementation point out that often people need to take uh, extra and that there's often little harm in taking one, two, or 3,000 units daily in addition to their diet. Uh, but I think personally, I've not been recommending that particular approach. Okay, and this is our last question. Can you please comment on the accuracy of a rapid test versus a PCR sent out to a lab? Yeah, so uh, you may have seen some news stories about rapid tests. On the one hand, what's great about rapid tests are people immediately know if they're infected, right? So you get an answer in 15 or 30 minutes. You're not waiting days for something to come back from a central laboratory. And I think this is uh, critical and important at this stage where we're not getting test results back fast and therefore you really can't change behavior easily or well if you're waiting that many days. Now, the issues with the rapid tests are that they're less accurate. And certainly, there's more false negatives. Um, this is especially true of some platforms, but there's also false positives, especially the antigen tests. And uh, there have been some stories about, you know, Mike DeWine, the Ohio governor, which appears to have had a rapid false positive, NFL football players. So there's obviously benefits, but at the same token, there's uh, going to be less accuracy. I still think they have a role. Even the PCR tests, you know, we really don't have a true benchmark. Uh, you know, when we do tests, it often depends on the stage of disease as to how accurate they're going to be in, in identifying the virus. So, uh, you know, we do not have a perfect diagnostic, which is why you've probably never seen any kind of comprehensive statements about accuracy of these tests either from manufacturers or even the Centers for Disease Control, you generally see ranges and just some general comparisons, which is what I'm doing here today. Great, thank you. As a reminder to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater.
Yeah, uh, thank you, Faith. And uh, I, I think there is always some uh, confusion with uh, COVID-19. I think, again, clinicians caring for patients may have been thrown into a bit more this past week. So hopefully we can uh, get some clarity uh, soon on many uh, issues and questions and, and hope you stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening. 